Welcome to the PR Moment Podcast. Produced in association with the Marketeers Network. This week on the PR Moment Podcast, I'm talking to Crisis PR lawyer Jonathan Code about his new book, Reputation Matters. Jonathan is one of the UK's top media lawyers. He spent 30 years working on both the PR side and the editorial sides of the fence. And Reputation Matters gives a unique insight into how the media works and some practical advice on how to deal with PR crises effectively. Jonathan is also the principal at Code Law. Before we start, just to promo our stunning selection of webinars we've got coming up um, we, in the next week or two. We've got PR and TikTok um, and correlation or causation, the link between corporate reputation and business performance. So if you haven't signed up yet to those, please go and take a look at the homepage of PRM.com. Both of those are free to attend. You'll be pleased to know. Finally, thanks so much, as ever, to our PR Moment podcast sponsors, the PRCA. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Um, so go on then, talk to, just talk us through what, what the book is all about uh, and why you wrote it, because I suspect you're quite a busy man. Well, I, I've been delivering a seminar about how to deal with media crises for about 25 years. And about 18 months ago, someone said at the end of it, look, this is really interesting stuff. We've not heard much of it before any thought ever thought of writing it down in a book so that's what I did um and what's it all about go on give us a give us a, a top line we're going to talk all about it but in essence um why should people buy it I suppose well people should buy it because uh, it'll make them do their job better uh, and it sounds like a, a slightly arrogant thing to say but as you mentioned in the introduction I have had the advantage which I think is pretty well unique of being both a reputation management lawyer and an editorial lawyer for 30 years. So I've both practiced uh, reputation management and dealt with media crises on behalf of the media. So I've kind of seen it from both sides. Um, And when PR people are in the midst of this stuff, when they've got some important decisions to make, um, why is it that, um, dare I say, perhaps a better knowledge than what they currently have of media law is going to prove pretty helpful? Well, Ben, it's important to say it's not just media law. I mean, most of the work that I do is using media regulation. And for the telly, that's the Ofgum Code. For most of Fleet Street, that's the Independent Press Standards Organisation Editorial Code. So that's the framework on which the the book is written. When PR people are looking at or the decision-making process as they're going through a crisis, what is it they need to know about those codes that's going to give them better insight in, in terms of what they should do to be more successful in how they manage that story? Well, based on my delivering seminars, which I've done to a lot of big PR organisations, the first thing they need to know is that these codes exist. And then they need to know what the key elements are of them. And I take all the key elements of both the Ofcom code and the Independent Brand Standards Organisation code and set them out in the book. But I was trying to think of, a, of an analogy as to, as to why it's so essential to have these at hand and the best I could come up with is if you're trying to do crisis PR and you don't know of these of this machinery, which has been provided by the media itself for the very purpose 
of stopping stuff going out which is wrong, then you're a little bit like a doctor who's trying to treat COVID without knowing what the right drugs are to treat COVID. So you just can't do a proper job. Right. Um, but, I mean, as an observer of, of the media, it seems to me that these, these codes are very often ignored by the press. So something's going a bit awry there, isn't it? Well, you're absolutely right. They're, they're um, honoured very much in the breach. But the point is, Ben, the reason for that is, is that they uh, can live in the comfortable thought that most people who do crisis management either don't know the codes exist or don't know what's in them or don't know how to apply it. And that there's no incentive to them um, to uh, abide by the codes while they're never held to account if they breach them or they're never told, most importantly, in advance of a publication, actually, if you publish this, you'll breach your own code. Right. So it's a slightly subtle point in a way. It's the, the, the fact that the codes exist is nobody's nobody's arguing that they don't exist obviously but what what you're saying is that pr people need to lean on the wording of those codes more than they currently do to bring them to bring the codes to the attention of the editors is is that in essence what you're saying yes it i I put it slightly differently the editor needs to know that you know the code and (laughs) you know how to apply it right if the editor thinks you don't know the code, then, then the editor is not going to feel any obligation to, to comply with it. And just to give you an indication of how basic it is. So all the Fleet Street titles, except the Financial Times, the Guardian, the Independent, are bound by the Ipso Code. Paragraph 1.1 of which says newspapers and periodicals must take care not to publish inaccurate or misleading material, including pictures, and must not publish headlines which are not supported by the text. Now, if you're confronted with a story from the Daily Mail where where that code provision is going to be breached, what needs to happen is you write back to the Daily Mail and says it says here in a code which incidentally you've written, which basically the Daily Mail has, that uh, you mustn't publish inaccurate misleading material. This is inaccurate misleading material. It should never appear on your website or turn up in your paper. Um, and and. I'm just it's who's this book for then is it for pr people is it a legal text is it is it a is it a textbook or is it is it bedtime reading where where are you where, is it where where are you positioning it do you think well that's a very good question ben um i wrote i wrote it very carefully primarily as two things. One, uh, an education about how the media works, because I don't think you can set out to try and influence an entity, uh, you know, a, a species, an organisation, where you don't properly understand how what makes it tick. And then the second thing is that there are a whole array of uh, uh, obligations which uh, journalists have signed up to voluntarily which they need to be called to account with. Now, there is some uh, stuff in there about the law. Uh, the law is also a part of the background and should go into the into the work of to do effective crisis management. But it's very much, I think a manual would be a better way of putting it. But as to your question about website, about bedtime reading, it's full of anecdotes. Uh, and the, the way I've tried to, to, to help people understand the science, so to speak, is to, is to illustrate it. So it has loads and loads of stories, almost all of them from my own practice, um, which hopefully make it also good bedtime reading. 
Right. So come on, how can a lawyer or I suppose a PR person undermine the, the, the confidence of a journalist source? Because that's that's sort of what it gets to the nub of this, does it? Well, it's certainly one of the things that, that uh, you need to be thinking about. One of the things, one of the chapters in the book, um, one of the later chapters in the book sets out all the thought processes which, which I go through when a story comes in. Uh, and one of them is if the uh, journalist is relying on a source, then uh, if you undermine the confidence of that journalist in the source, then they're going to be much more cautious or more particularly, and this is a key point, the person who's legaling out the story, because everything that you read in newspaper has been legaled out by someone like me, and I've legaled out newsprint, magazines, films, television programs, you name it. So I know what what the, the person legaling out the, the, the copy, the article, is thinking. So if, if I can undermine the newspaper's confidence in the source, then that means that if they get called to account by an Ipso complaint on a story based on that source, then they're not so likely to be able to hold it up, which in turn means they're probably best, much less likely to, to risk publishing it. Right. That's, um, it's interesting stuff. So it's your... I just think when I think about when, when you're sitting down to write this book, um, did you did is part of the reason you wrote it anyway because you have a, a deep seated anger with the with the UK press that that's built up over a long time, right? Well, uh, the honest answer in part it is yes, and uh, I think you'll only really understand it if you read the book. And the reason is Ben is that I have seen clients' lives utterly ruined by some of the Fleet Street titles in acts of, of extraordinary cruelty, especially against women. And in many cases, I'd be able to fight back, get them compensation and the like. But the deep-seated damage that newspapers have done to people's lives, to marriages, to, to children, has got me fired up. Right. So uh, it is one of the reasons why I wrote the book. But also, if people understand better how to stop the press doing all these dreadful things, then their, their lives of some people will be improved. But lastly, and that's, that's a long question, but we also, when the press tells us something that, that's untrue, we all suffer, okay? So part of the uh, very grand ambition of the book is to reduce the amount of stuff in the press, which is wrong. And if I can do that, then I've played a small part in improving the quality of the British press. Right. Just, just talk me through, I mean, how, how much work is there for people like you? I mean, it, it seems to me, but just hearing you talk there, is it, it's almost infinite, infinite, in, infinite is it? it there's just, there's just lot, you, you have to deal with lots, you have lots and lots of ongoing cases all of the time, or is it just tend to be the, the real high profile stuff that we'd all have heard of that, that people like you get the call on? Well, the thing about my work, Ben, yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm not short of work. Uh, I really love it, but I, I, um, I'm, I, I have certainly at least as much as I need. But I think the, the, to, to illustrate um, best, I think, about how effective it can be, is to give instances where nobody knows about the work. It's not high profile, because the best thing to do with a media crisis is to stop it happening. So let's give me one practical example. I have a client who's a huge American multinational producer of um, 
bathroom products um, uh, and in particular baby products. And it produces one of the brand leading nappy, um, which certainly I used to use for my kids when they were little. Now, a, a French magazine ran a story suggesting that this brand leading nappy was carcinogenic. Now, you can imagine how many parents buy carcinogenic nappies for their children. Now, this story was completely wrong. Now, the conventional way of dealing with it was when the mail sent over the story saying, we're going to say your nappy is carcinogenic. Unfortunately, the, the, the um, knee-jerk response of many PR people is just to write a statement which goes in at the end of the story, which was going to be absolutely no use. I wrote back saying this story is wrong for all of these reasons. It breaches the IPSO code. And incidentally, if you breach the IPSO code, then you're more vulnerable for a to a defamation action. And you need to take the story down immediately. It was taken down immediately. It all took about 30 minutes. And it's a story you've never heard of because I stopped it spreading. So, you know, it's, it, it's some of the best work that I do is to, to make a story disappear before it ever hits the headlines right so it's sort of there's that there's that golden hour um belief that the, the first hour that golden hour once it once a, a crisis hits is is such a crucial time but in a sense what you're saying there is actually if you do respond it can almost be the worst thing to do obviously it does depend on the type of crisis but um yeah. th th there's a an interesting insight there Ben, if you own an airline and one of your airliners crashes into Buckingham Palace, there's nothing anybody can do about a story like that. No. But um, the, the golden hour, which I thought I'd made up, of course, I was proved wrong about that when I, when I started reading and researching for the book. The golden hour you will find is PR speak for the hour after the publication of the news. Now, for me, the golden hour is the metaphorical hour before the publication of the news. Because in that time, the first thing you've got to decide is, is this a story which, practically speaking, can be stopped? And if it can, that should be your target. If it can't, then most stories are multi-elemented. So let's say it's a six-element story. Well, probably, given the quality of British press, let's say two elements are completely wrong. Two elements are at least in some degree wrong. And two elements are right. Well, the two elements that are right, there's not much you can do about. But if you get two thirds of the story pretty well killed off, then this risk to scale of that story being a risk to scale 10 crisis goes down to risk to scale three crisis. And not only is the original story much less damaging, but because it's produced in size and, and, and volume, it's much less likely to be repeated. Right. Um, no, that's, yes, interesting. A very interesting insight into how these things work and the, uh, the all the stuff that we don't see um, from the outside looking in. Now, just while you're here, um, just give us your insight into, I don't know, can I ask you who you reckon will win the, the, the Rooney Vardy case that, that's coming up soon? Or are you, it, it, do, do we not know enough yet? So I was afraid you might ask me that, Ben. Um, so there are some big profile cases where it's, it's easier to, easy to call the winner. Johnny Depp didn't have a cat in hell's chance of winning his lively action against the Sun. The evidence against him was overwhelming. They had 14 instances of violence and he, they only had to prove one or two and he was never going to disprove all of them. Meghan Markle, Meghan Markle was always going to win her privacy case against the Mail on Sunday because there was no defence to what they did. Now, in this case, a lot will turn on what happens in the witness box. 
And the key thing will be how Rebecca Vardy does in the witness box, because she'll be very fiercely cross-examined by a very, very good, but very good barrister. And it'll be a um, it'll be a question of whether she convinces the judge. So we're down to this. She, she's now accepted that her personal PR person, Caroline Watt, was responsible for, for, the, for the leaks. So she's got to persuade the judge that Caroline Watt did it entirely of her own back rather than at the request of Rebecca Bardi. If she can convince the judge of that, she'll win. If she can't, she'll lose. Right. And that is the crux of the case. It's the crux of the case. Without going into too much detail on the intricacies of the case, just give us your perspective on the, the Johnny Depp and the Heard case uh, and the differences between UK and US media law. Well, there are two fundamental dis- differences, Ben, to, to the case in the UK, actually to, based on the law. And there's w- one fundamental difference to based on the parties to the litigation. So first of all, in America, to win a defamation action, you've got to prove not only the words were untrue, but also the person who published those words or wrote them knew that they weren't, were untrue, what, what we call malice. That's very, very difficult to do. The other thing about American libel actions is they're held in front of a jury, which used to be the case in the UK. Now, anyone who's worked in front of a jury will know that it's a very wild and crazy place to try and de- determine legal issues. So it, 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 it is much more difficult to work out what a, what a jury will do. And it was always said in the, the, in the British courts that it was really a popularity contest. Who, who's going to win or lose? It really depends on the law. It's whether the, ju- the jury like you. The other fundamental change is that in UK, um, Johnny Depp didn't sue Amber Heard, but he sued the newspaper. In America, he's suing um, Amber Heard. So that it's much more head to head. It must yeah. be more fun than anyone get, gets paid to be a lawyer in that case. Right. Um, Jonathan, um, thank you so much for coming on the show and good luck with uh, your, your new book, Reputation Matters, which is out uh, and no doubt available from Amazon. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Thanks for listening to the PR Moment podcast, produced in association with the Marketeers Network. If you'd enjoyed the show, please do review us on iTunes and give us a decent rating.